Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Hear them hum, watch them run, oh our job is never done, for our roadways go rolling along. While you ride, while you glide, we are watching down in sight, so your roadways keep rolling along. Oh, it's hi, hi, he, the rotor men are we. Check off the sectors loud and strong. One, two, anywhere you go, you are bound to know that your roadways keep rolling along. Keep them rolling! That your roadways keep rolling along. Welcome to episode 23 of Unknown Orbits, The Roads Must Roll by Robert Heinlein. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to talk about this early story from Robert Heinlein. We're also going to talk about his political orientations and how he expressed that in his work. The story of The Roads Must Roll is set in the future. I think it's around the 1960s. This was written in 1940 in Astounding Magazine. So it's somewhere in the 1960s. Great moving roadways, which are like giant sidewalks, transport pedestrians at high speeds, up to 100 miles an hour between cities. This mode of transport has completely replaced cars and roadways and is essential to the functioning of society. Millions of people are transported every day to their jobs or travel or wherever they're going. Technicians in the Sacramento department revolt, seizing control of the roadways and shutting them down, stranding millions. The revolutionaries are functionalists who believe that they have the inherent right to exercise power due to the importance of their position. Quote, we run the show. It's the natural order of things. Chief Engineer Gaines, the protagonist of the story, who's in charge of this particular section of the roadway, leads a counterattack underground in the machinery spaces under the roadway. They have a running battle with some of the revolutionaries. They seize control of the machinery, and then it ends when he confronts the leader of the revolt at the main office in Sacramento, and through his superior brains and character, he disarms him and ends the uprising. So this story is very much a political story. It's about the idea of who has a say in a capitalist system, basically. The workers, the technicians, are ruled over pretty strictly by a group of more educated administrators like Mr. Gaines. There's a new generation of cadets that are being cranked out to run the roadways. They go to a military-style academy, and they're highly educated and trained, basically, or given the mission to make sure the roads never stop. That's essential. The roads must always roll. So there's a militaristic control to some degree, an increasingly militaristic control of the roadways and the workers, and that's why you have this revolt take place. You could read this story, and I kind of did read this story, as Heinlein's sideways commentary on labor unions, and it wasn't necessarily positive. 
it, it did have an underlying message to some degree that the establishment had to run things. It definitely falls into the competent man genre that John W. Campbell was fond of and promoted. And the main character here, Engineer Gaines, is very much the competent man. Not only is he smart and tough, but he's very, very manly. And he subdues the head of the bad guys through the sheer force of his manliness to some degree. I thought it was a very well-written story. I thought that he handled exposition very well. We've just talked about that recently, how clumsy some other writers have been in handling exposition. Heinlein's very good at that. He did have a little bit of a problem in shifting viewpoints in the story, but it wasn't major. Uh, the story moved along briskly. It was it was fun to read and kind of exciting. I thought it was a good story. What do you think? As a story, I thought it was very good. One disappointment I have always had with Heinlein is after a certain point in my life, I could see the politics and attitudes of the writer seeping through the work. And for Heinlein, that's really disappointing because he writes so well, you want to love the story. You want to be involved in the story, especially since I grew up on his juveniles. So one of the things that I liked about this story, and it was to some degree inspiring to me, is that in my own writing, the science fiction novel that I'm working on now, the social and political elements of it are central to the story. And I am not a science guy. I'm never going to write hard science fiction. I don't want to write hard science fiction. I like writing science fiction, but I probably lean towards a softer science of sociology and political science. And that's what Heinlein does. Heinlein writes about the softer sciences, even though the way to put it, here's a good way to put it. I believe in this story in particular and some of his other stories, he talks about the social impact of new machines or new technology. And that's a very valid type of science fiction. We've talked about the predictive nature of science fiction. You can certainly talk about the effects of technology just as much as you can talk about the technology itself as a science fiction writer, all the wonderful things that a new technology enables. But, you know, you can also do cautionary tales where you say, well, this new technology has a downside, and here it is. In my particular case, what this story helped to reinforce with me as a writer is that I can focus on the fact that even though technology has enabled man to expand out into the stars— we didn't exactly fix all of our problems of our society before we did that. So we took the defects of human society out to the stars with us. And that's, to some degree, what my novel will be about. How do you feel about that? How is it different when a writer inserts their political agenda, let's put it that way, or at least puts political issues that they want to discuss into a story how is that any different than someone who's driven by science wanting to put a lot of science into their story? You know, I can make that question even harder to answer because I've oh, been good. I've been thinking about it. I write mostly satire. So I'm writing things that are based on an opinion. Yet I criticize Heinlein for pushing his opinion. Now, I admit there's a very fine line between the two, but I I think I think it's an important line. In satire, I do have an opinion, 
but 90% of what I'm doing is shining a light on things, exaggerating things to show you the hypocrisies in a system. Well, isn't that kind of political? I know. I'm trying hard here. What Heinlein does is not at all part of the plot. He will drop things here and there. I was about to call Heinlein a hypocrite, and I have a good example of that. But I have a hard time saying what the difference is, except that I'm not trying to change people. I'm trying to get people to make up their own mind. Heinlein is trying to recruit them to his... Okay, that's a good point, because I think you're right that unlike a writer who presents both sides of a story and is kind of ambiguous in terms of how they fall down on either side, Heinlein makes it very clear in most of his stories exactly where his sentiments are. And they're usually with the protagonist of the story. And in this case, the protagonist is a member of the establishment. He's an administrative representative of the capitalist system. He sympathizes with the workers in a general way, but he's not a fan of collective action by the workers. And his stories are positively soaked with the idea that what he is saying is the absolute truth. Of course it's the truth. It's the right way to be, and you're an idiot if you don't believe in it. Yeah, that's definitely true of Heinlein. And as a writer, I don't want to sound a little pompous here, but I'd like to do better than Heinlein in being able to talk about politics the way that I want to talk about them, but do it in a way that is organic to the story and is... There's a difference between message and theme in writing. Yes. Message is, I've got a message that I'm going to tell, and I'm going to use this story to tell my message. Theme is, this story is about something. You serve the story first. You make sure you tell the story and that all of the things that happen in that story, all of the characters, all the elements that you bring in support the story. And the theme is there. It's only one element among many in the story. And the theme is expressed through the story. It does not dominate the story. It does not drive the story. But it's a parallel course that follows the story through to completion. I don't know if that's too vague, but to me, that's the difference between message and theme. Message is deadly to storytelling. Theme can enrich storytelling, I believe. The problem with Heinlein is he is such a good writer that when he's just giving you nothing but message, it's still pretty good. Yeah. I don't think he was really hitting you over the head with a message in this story. The message, if there was one, was kind of subtle. I mean, the fact that the main character, Engineer Gaines, is the classic competent man who overcomes the weak-minded and sniveling coward, the revolution leader, you know, that's kind of cliched, really. It's very much of its era. But as I said, he does express concern for the workers at different points. He's not an overbearing character at all. And he actually shows a great deal of restraint in the attack, when they're attacking and taking control of the facilities, he's very reluctant to use violence unless pushed into it. So, yeah, I think we agree that message is bad. Highland's not a terrible offender in terms of battering you over the head with messaging. I wanted to bring up his juveniles. Okay, maybe that's a good departure point here, is to shift over to talking about his juveniles, which you're much more familiar with than I am. I've not read any of his juveniles so I'd like to hear what, what you had to say uh, to your take on that. Uh, as a kid, I loved them. I sought them out, read as many as I could get my hands on. 
and I really enjoyed them. When I was still very young, I started noticing he will give message. In the juveniles, it's a lot more obvious where there will just be paragraphs explaining that viewpoint. It's entertaining the way he does it. It's almost insidious the way it slips in under the radar of, well, this just is how life is. How could it be any different than this? And what his authoritarian viewpoint ends up doing, as with all authoritarians, I don't mean to offend any authoritarians out there, at its heart, it becomes hypocritical because the self is treated differently than the non-self. The best example I can think of at the moment is in, I think it's called Citizen of the Galaxy. It starts out with this poor orphan who's being taken care of by an older man among some city ruins, and they go out and begging for money every day. It's a very much cream rises to the top story. Everything gets, I don't know, blown up or something, and he's off on his adventures. The beginnings of the story are very critical of the idle rich, people who have not earned their place. But by the end of the book, he discovers, oh no, I'm an orphan from a fabulously world-wealthy family that practically rules Earth. And that's where he ends up. So everything works out in the end because he finds out he's rich after all. Yeah, after criticizing people who don't earn their position, (laughs) just inherit things. That's great. So I think I have a, I don't want to say a unique insight into Heinlein's dichotomy. And Heinlein's dichotomy is... A lot of his works are expressly libertarian in their orientation. He talks a lot about the freedom of the individual, the power of the individual. He talks about the need for men to throw off the confining bands of authoritarian governments. He's very anti-government in many, many respects in some of his stories. And yet he wrote Starship Troopers, which postulates a future society where The only way to be a citizen is through military service. And it's a very fascistic, authoritarian society. And then on top of that, he wrote The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is a classic of libertarian science fiction, where the moon throws off the yoke of Earth to have this very open society that's very libertarian, kind of almost hippie-ish sort of a society. So there's this dichotomy between authoritarian promoting authoritarianism in his writing and simultaneously promoting libertarianism and that's very confusing for people but i can tell you as someone who not only was uh, involved in libertarianism but was a member of the libertarian party for several years i no longer consider myself a libertarian for a number of complicated reasons but I was actively involved. I actually ran for lieutenant governor in 2018 under the Libertarian Party. So I think I know quite a bit about how the libertarian, or at least some libertarian minds work. And that's where you get this confusion between authoritarianism and libertarianism, which sometimes exists in the same space. All hardcore libertarians, they're either anarchists or what's called minarchists. Minarchists, they believe in the least amount of government possible. It's not pure anarchism, but it's pretty close to it. And the anarchists want to get rid of all forms of government and believe that human society should be run through mutual exchange. So I give you something in exchange, you give me something of value to me back in exchange, and we have this mutually dependent 
relationship that's the foundation of society and that's what keeps the peace and allows society to function is this network of interdependence based on our own individual needs and the ability of others to meet those needs. So that's a wonderful concept in theory. And one of the reasons I'm not a libertarian anymore is because I think it's a complete fantasy to think that we can have a society where people are going to be nice enough to just barter with each other and live together and find mutual dependency. So what happens then is that this idea that seems almost, like I said, hippie-ish, you know, we all live together in peace, man, and, you know, grow hemp and, you know, and turn our hemp into uh, uh, tractors and sell each other tractors that are built out of hemp. And, you know, man, we'll all get along just cool, you know, and that's a wonderful idea. But where the authoritarianism impulse comes in within libertarianism is not through the philosophy. The philosophy is consistent with individualism and liberty and freedom, but the personality, there's many, many people who are radical libertarians who have a similar personality, which is the personality types that are deficient to some degree in empathy. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Briggs-Meyer. I'm an INTJ. I'm a problem solver, the architect personality. And I recognize in myself that at times I lack the ability to read social cues. And I'm so focused on getting the job done that I sometimes am not very good at the human aspects of working together in an organization. And a lot of libertarians are like that. They're good problem solvers. A lot of them are in IT. They work in technical professions. We look at Heinlein and a lot of these early science fiction people. Who were they? They were a lot of very technical people. They were problem solvers. So you get this personality-driven part of libertarianism that is blind to human nature, where people don't always act rationally. They act irrationally. They act out of anger and jealousy and fear, and they're manipulated by other people through anger and jealousy and fear. And that's where the argument starts to fall apart for libertarianism, is it does not account for the human factor. And because so many libertarians, as an inherent part of their personality, fail to understand that, at least on an instinctual level, they tend to become a little authoritarian in their dealings with the rest of the world. And they come off as a libertarian because they're saying, well, how can you be so stupid and not see how perfect the system is? And why can't you see that I created the perfect rational argument of explaining why my system is great and you're not listening to me or you're not understanding it? Well, you must be stupid. So that's where that authoritarian element rises up because the libertarians themselves have this difficulty in navigating the human nature aspect of social and political activism. Okay. I was thinking on the personality of the people. I think they are pretty much identical. The difference being is whether or not they desire to impose their... I don't think it's so much a desire to impose their thinking on other people. It's a frustration that you know, it's like, well, you're not listening to me. I don't understand. I, I can't tell you the number of people that I ran into in the libertarian movement who thought all I have to do is create the perfect argument and put it in front of someone and they will immediately realize how brilliant that is 
and they will come to over to our side. That's someone who does not understand people at all. Exactly. That's what I'm saying is the, there's a fundamental flaw of libertarians in general. By the way, there are many good people in libertarian movement who do get the human nature part of it, but I'm just saying there's either big minority or small majority of people who are absolutely clueless about the human nature aspect of it, and that's the flaw. That's the central flaw, and I believe that Heinlein had that flaw. I can see why Heinlein would have had authoritarian and libertarian arguments. Both of them have the fantasy of independence. Yes, and I'll give you an example of an extreme argument I heard multiple times while I was with the libertarians, was this argument that in a free society, a business owner should be able to racially discriminate against customers. So in other words, the old days of segregation where blacks couldn't sit at the lunch counter or you could refuse service to somebody because of the color of their skin. They make this elaborate argument of why under libertarian principles that should be allowed. I tried to counter that argument and got nowhere with them because it's an obviously stupid argument. You could never get anywhere with a zealot. Right. But that's how far the logic of the situation can be taken. You can take it to that ridiculous logical extreme because you're completely not factoring in the human equation. Just the fact that it's just plain wrong to discriminate against people based on color. And I don't care what your justification is, it's wrong. I've heard libertarian arguments that talk about letting old people die if they can't get up. It doesn't get that extreme. The typical libertarian response to that issue is, well, some charity will come along in our free society and take care of all of that. You are literally waving your hand as you say that. Yes, I mean, it's literally like magical thinking. So I don't want to be bashing libertarians too hard here. I had a lot of positive experiences with libertarians, and I learned a lot. I became much more staunchly anti-war as a result of that. I came to understand the inherent violence of government through them. I think to round this back to science fiction, think about what you and I have talked about about the competent man. And the general philosophy is certainly of John W. Campbell, but a lot of other science fiction writers of the era, that there should be an elite of the highly technically competent, well-educated, scientifically intelligent people who should run things. It's an extension of the old progressive idea that wise men who have learned the science of management should be in charge of everything so that you no longer have the old political system of spoils and patronage. You replace that corrupt system with a scientific system run by competent men who are well-trained and intelligent and know the science of everything. And that's thick and through most of the science fiction of this era, that idea of the scientific elite. And Heinlein certainly was an advocate of that, I think. Yeah. So do you have any further thoughts on uh, the politics of Heinlein or this story in particular? Not on the politics, but on this story, it's a fun example of, uh, and I've called this different things, it's a type of story. Today I've decided to call it Guy at Work, where the guy has a very science fictional future job, and we get to see the deep inner workings of it. I always think that's fun as hell. And to his credit, and this is one reason I'm definitely going to be trying to read some more Heinlein because of having read this story, is that he does go into some detail of how the walkways work, but he doesn't do what Campbell and others do, which is like have a gigantic dump of technical information that goes on for pages 
that you have to slog through to get to the actual story. He's a good enough writer where he can fill that information in along the way in digestible bits. So credit to him for making you interested in the technical part of it and not making it a chore to have to figure it out. Yeah. All right, that's it for episode 23. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. Anywhere you go, you are bound to know that your roadways go rolling along. Keep them rolling! That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.